You are listening to a Whitebridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. Amen. It's good to be back. Uh, we've been away uh, recently, the mission trip to Bolivia, <clears throat> and uh, what a blessing it was. I want to give greetings from Kevin and Linnell and the kids. The Colossians are in Bolivia, and they are doing great. I hope they come back. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I knew Kevin would fit in uh, like a wet noodle, but uh, um, I wasn't sure about the others, you know, and they, they just are loving it down there. That's great. They're catching on language and, and culture and uh, really having some good ministry, too. So praise the Lord. And the team just had a great time with the Colossians. They just kind of joined with us and, uh, and enjoyed the, the whole two weeks together. So praise God. And uh, I look forward to hearing from the Garden Hill team. I only just saw some of them back this morning. I look forward to sharing and hearing how the Lord worked in that week. And uh, we're all going to get a chance to hear that on September 12th. That's the big day, Saturday. We're planning, if it all works out, we're planning to have a special service Saturday night at the McGillivray property with a big screen and, uh, and a projector and some slides and reports, people sharing about Adventures at the Ridge, about Camp Nudemick, about Garden Hill Ministry, and about Bolivia Ministry. And then the next day, on the 13th, we're going to come back to that property and, and, and maybe leave our chairs there overnight. I don't know, but we're going to have the, the Samong Presbyterian Church join us. We're going to have a joint service there. And have a big meal right afterwards on the property. So I hope you can just mark that weekend, September 12 and 13. We're looking forward to having a big time together to hear of God's faithfulness in the ministries that our church was involved in this summer. And so we look forward to that. Doug's already mentioned that we support Shoal Lake 40 Freedom Road. And, uh, you know, I, I can't help but think of it ever since I signed up on the petition that this water that I'm drinking right here comes from Shoal Lake. And every time you open a tap, every time you shower in Winnipeg here, this water that you're using is from Shoal Lake. And the people on the island that, that have the water all around them can't drink a drop of it. It's just crazy. I know that there's all kinds of Aboriginal First Nations issues in this Canada, in this country. But I think this is one of the more clear ones that we can get behind and So we've been listening to the reports, reading the papers, talking to people, trying to do some of our homework. I got a call from Steve Bell this past week, and just he's very involved in one of the campaigns, and he's been out there uh, to the Shoal Lake several times and met with Chief Irwin Redsky. And I've been watching the news. I've been trying to understand the whole story, uh, but I think it's something that is a justice issue. And uh, the federal government seems to be lagging on this. The the city of Winnipeg, the province of Manitoba, various groups like CUPE and others are all backing this thing. We're seeing money coming in from private citizens. Uh, It's something that seems kind of more logical. So uh, I don't know what you think, the church here. I don't know. Some of you might have other thoughts and opinions, but we felt that this was something we needed to step up and declare on. We've done nothing so far. We've put a sign up, but may the Lord lead us with a conscience and with wisdom to know if we can do more. So I'd ask you to be praying about that whole matter, Shoal Lake. Um, Every time I go to Kenora, I drive right by the road to Shoal Lake, and I think about them. 
So may God give us wisdom as we think about that. And uh, perhaps we could just pray right now for a moment and just uh, pray for this service and the message as well. Father God, we give you praise for this incredible privilege we have. Every time I come back to Canada from being in Bolivia or somewhere else, the, the, the signal to my body that I am home, God, is that I can drink water out of the tap. Because you just have given this country such incredible resources. And so many countries around the world, you just have to drink bottled water and so on. But Lord God, we have this incredible wealth in our country. And yet there are communities that don't, don't have this. And we just pray that we would know how to respond. We think of Shoal Lake or Garden Hill and places like that. And we pray, oh God, that we would have just wisdom, wisdom from you to know how to, how to respond to our government, how to engage with people, how to be a source of hope and solution and justice. God, we thank you so much for returning the teams of Bolivia and Garden Hill back safely with little uh, health problems. We thank you so much for the impact, not only in those places, but on our lives as global discipleship took place. God, we're just excited about the things we're going to hear from them and see in them as we continue to be transformed as a people, to be more like you, Jesus. That's our goal, to be more like you. Lord, would you just pray, would you just anoint the message? We pray that you would anoint this message right now. Lord, pour your anointing upon me and upon all of our hearts as we receive the word so that we might hear, Lord, what your spirit is saying in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. We've been going through the book of James this summer, but I didn't want to mess up the order of all those that are preaching and getting ready, so I've uh, elected to preach from a passage in Philippians, chapter 1. And uh, actually, when we were in Bolivia uh, about a week ago or more, um, Sean Major was preaching this very text at the... uh, seminary chapel in Cochabamba and uh, through a translator. And so Philippians chapter 1, and let's uh, stand together to hear God's word if you're able to stand with us. And I'd like to read verses 1 to 6. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you in my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. May God bless his word. You may be seated. Thank you. The letter of the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi was written about 10 years after his first visit there, which we can read about in Acts chapter 16. And without turning there, let me just give you a little bit of a rundown of what Acts chapter 16 tells us about Paul's first journey to that place called Philippi. We read about it in Acts chapter 16, where um, this is about 20 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. 
um, that uh, Paul's writing this letter, but his visit was about 10 years after Christ's crucifixion. It's Paul's second missionary journey, and he's going back and visiting some of the churches that they visited on the first missionary journey. And they're going across that section, uh, and, uh, and they're on their way uh, west, and God's Spirit prohibits them from entering the places they had already visited. We read in Acts chapter 16, for example, in verse 6, it says that they were kept. They were kept. They were forbidden is the word. The same word that Jesus says, do not forbid these children from coming to me. The word is forbid. The Holy Spirit forbade the preaching of the word in the province of Asia. So there they are. They're going west. They want to go into the province of Asia. Holy Spirit says, no, don't go there. Then they carry on in verse 7. It says they tried to enter Bithynia. It says the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. So there they are. They're going. They try to go north. Bithynia, Spirit of Jesus says, no, you're not going there. They're just trying to visit the places they'd already planted churches. The Spirit of God is, is directing this second journey. It's incredible. And they keep on going. And, and in verse uh, 9, we read that Paul has a vision and in his vision, he sees a man from Macedonia, which is Europe at that time. And, uh, and he's begging the Apostle Paul and his companions to let them go to Europe and preach the gospel. He's begging. So Paul gets up in the morning and he shares his vision with the, the believers. And it says in verse 10 that with the closed doors all the way along and with the open door now at the end of that peninsula to Tro- at Troas, this, this port city that goes across the Aegean Sea to Macedonia and Europe, now that that door is open and all the other doors seem to be closed, it says collectively they decided that God was leading them to go and preach the gospel in Macedonia. What a great model of discerning God's leading and will. You get all kinds of closed doors that you think should be open, and then you get an open door that you think should be closed. And it's open. And so they set sail across the sea, and the first place that they land in, the first place they come to, is a Roman colony called Philippi. The first person that they meet there as they go down to the river to find a place to pray is a follower. It becomes a follower of Jesus. Her name is Lydia. She comes to know Jesus. We read about it in Acts chapter 16. It says in verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things that were spoken by Paul. And after her heart had opened, we read in the following verses that then she opened her home. It's incredible. Open doors, open hearts, open homes. Does that sound like God at work or what? That's the power of God in the unsaved world. Open doors, open hearts, open homes. You know, today in Canada or around the world, God's power is not limited. We might be limited, but God's power is not limited. God wants to work through his church. Today I want to talk to you about that. And about ten years after that first visit that Paul sees Lydia come to the Lord and the church is planted in her house, Paul is sitting under house arrest in Rome, chained to some Roman guards 24-7. 
And he says, you know, I'm actually rejoicing here because because of this, throughout the whole Praetorian Guard in Rome, people are coming to know Jesus. And so there's Paul and he's sitting there and when he opens up this letter and starts to write, what is it that first comes out of his pen? Verse three, he says, I thank God every time I remember you Philippians in all of my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Fourteen times in this little letter, the word joy or rejoice is used. And I want to know, this is what I want to know is I want to know why it is that Paul, who is sitting in a prison in Rome, chained to Roman guards, can be so full of joy, inexpressible, in the face of that. I want to know why. He gives us the reason why right off the bat before he starts his letter. He says it's because, verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So now I want to know something more. I don't want to just know he's told me the answer of why his joy is there. Now I want to know more about this thing that he calls the partnership in the gospel. I've been obsessing over this phrase these last couple of weeks. What is this partnership in the gospel? What does that mean? Why is it that it's so full of joy in Paul's heart? From the first day that Lydia came to faith, Paul says, 10 years later, after all the reports come to him in Rome, he finds out they're still walking according to the faith and it gives him full joy. And he says in verse six, he completes the thought. He says, because I'm confident that he who began the good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So there's Paul looking back, looking present, looking future. He's just full of joy. He can't even contain his joy. So, question is, this morning, I want to answer in this message. The question is, what is this partnership in the gospel which accounts for so much joy in Paul's life? Leon Morris writes this. He says, the New Testament writers are like men who ransack their vocabulary to find words which will bring out some small fraction of the mighty thing that God has done for us in Christ. Did you get that? Here, here are the New Testament authors under divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And they are shaking their vocabulary in their heads. They can't come up with enough language to describe this incredible reality that Jesus gives us. The joy that God gives. They don't have enough words in Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic or any other language. There they are, Leon Morris says. This is one of the problems trying to describe something that brings indescribable joy to your heart. You've all had the experience. Some of you back on mission trips will just have a taste of that. You've experienced something that has touched you at a deep level somewhere in that mission trip. And you come back and someone says, how did it go? So glad that Doug prepared the church with the eight great questions. You don't know how you don't have words completely. It's It's hard. But more so when we talk about the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, trying to describe an indescribable joy that's flowing out of your heart. Whether we use a telescope 
or a microscope or whatever illustration we want to use, the point that needs to be made is this, that the message, the reality of the Christ life, the reality of Christ and what he's achieved for sinners is so wonderful. It is so indescribable and unsearchable that whatever means we use, we are still at a loss and there's still more to discover about the life of God in the soul of man. There's so much more. So that's base level. We don't have the vocabulary. Our hearts are bursting if we understand even a little bit of the gospel of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis, in his um, book, The The Last Battle, has a scene where Lucy uh, meets up with the fawn Tumnus. You with me? Tumnus? Okay. Um, And she's got this experience of, of seeing the garden. And she says to Tumnus, the fawn, she says, I don't understand. The garden is bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. And and she says, how can this be? And Tumnus responds really matter-of-factly. And he says this, the further up and the further in you go, the bigger everything gets. The inside is larger than the outside, like an onion, except that as you continue to go in and in and in, each circle is larger than the last. Doesn't that describe the kingdom of God? For those of you that have experienced Jesus, personal knowing Jesus, does that not describe knowing Jesus? That from the outside, as you looked at him one day, you got inside him and you realized that inside is way bigger than the outside. When you experienced the grace of God, you looked at it from the outside and then you got inside. You got inside the grace of God. God opened the door for you, a sinner. You didn't deserve it. And you opened the door of grace. You walked in and you realized it's way bigger than I ever imagined. That's the kingdom, you see. That's the kingdom of God. That's you being possessed by the love of God. Your eternal soul being loved eternally by God. The word that Paul uses... For the gospel. Euangelion in Greek. 76 times used in the New Testament. It just simply means good news. The evangel. But it, it, it just falls short. Of describing what is on the apostles hearts. As they try to describe the gospel. And so they use other words and they use other metaphors and they they do everything they can. They stand on tiptoe. They do backflips with their vocabulary. But it's all not good enough. 
You see, the problem in our age is reductionism. We have reduced the gospel to a bridge illustration. We have reduced the gospel to four spiritual laws. Or worse yet, we've reduced the gospel to accepting Jesus. With no understanding of all the depth of root of what is underneath that idea of of a, a human soul receiving the infinite God. Reductionism. And so what we've done is we've we've accepted a version of the gospel that is propositional truth. It's propositional. But it's not necessarily incarnational. And that's the key. That's the key. And if it's only propositional and it's not incarnational, friends, guess what? It's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. And so if you grew up, you might have grown up, if you're maybe 40 or over, you might have grown up and you've heard propositional gospel presentation. It starts with creation and it goes to the fall and then it goes to the atonement of what Jesus did after all the Old Testament sacrificial system. And then it comes to response. It starts with God, it goes to man, it goes to Christ, it goes to man again responding. These are propositional truth components of how we present the gospel. I'm not against propositional truth. The historicity historicity of Jesus has to be understood. We have to know what we believe. Jesus died and rose again and is coming again. He's at the right hand of the Father right now interceding for all this is propositional truth. It's part of the gospel. But if it's divorced from incarnation, it's not the gospel. If we do not recognize the need to engage the heart's affections, the central passions of an individual, then we're not really sharing the heart of the gospel, which has to do with the reign of God in a life, the lordship of Christ in that life. God wants to invade people's lives, not just their minds. When God decided in eternity past that he was going to save for himself a people, he did not send a memo. He did not send sound bites. He did not send information. He did not send a doctrinal statement. He did not nail 95 theses to the door of earth. He did not give us the Apostles' Creed. He did not do that when he said, I want to save a people. He sent his son. His son came and he incarnated the gospel. It says the word became flesh And he made his dwelling among us. And we have beheld his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father. That's the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. It was lived on this earth. And the gospel is not going to ever come through you. Unless you live the gospel as well as speak the gospel. One of the speakers at the North American Baptist Triennial uh, in Sacramento last month was Mark Buchanan. And when he was preaching one day on Acts chapter 17, uh, he quoted verse 6 from the King James Version. And it's uh, in Thessalonica and uh, the, the whole city's upset about these Christians that have come sharing about their Jesus. And in the King James Version it says, this, These are the ones... 
that have turned the world upside down and now they've come here. That's the way the King James Version says it. And Mark Buchanan response, what was the last time that someone said about the Christians in Winnipeg? These are the ones that turn the world upside down. Mark Buchanan says in response, he says that the gospel must turn our world upside down before God will ever use us to turn our world upside down. You see, it's all about a life on fire. That's the gospel. Don't, Don't proposition the gospel. Don't reduce the gospel. Don't package the gospel. Don't think that you know the gospel because in your mind you can articulate some Christian theology. The gospel is a life transformed by Jesus' presence. That's the gospel. And that's the only kind that Paul says in Romans 1.16 has the power for salvation to anyone who believes. It's about transformation, not information. Now, it involves information. But without the transformation, it's just a head game. Another one of the speakers at the triennial was Reggie McNeil. And he said that in our generation, we need to, to learn both to live and to speak the gospel. And it might require, he said, a relanguaging of sorts. Use that idea of relanguaging the gospel. Just like cross-cultural missions involves translation work, so also evangelism and witness involves translation work. You see, because we in here, in the church, we live in a certain subculture. And when we leave this place and we go to our work, our school, or wherever in our neighborhoods, we are entering another culture and it requires translation work. Just like in Bolivia, we needed some translators and so on. Why would we think that we, with our worldview and our core values and our God and our Bible and our standard and our absolute truths and all that, could go into the world and not think that we don't need to translate? So we might need some relanguaging. That's translation. And so, what does that look like? The question is this. How do we communicate the truth of the gospel with integrity to its message while seeking to be understood by the culture around us. Well, as I've just been saying, you incarnate, first of all. But whoever said, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words, didn't read their Bibles. Because you see, the evangel, the gospel, is not just lived, but is definitely spoken. And friends, if you do the math and if you're a statistician, you can understand that if our conversion rates are going to go up in Canada, our conversation rates have to go up, right? There has to be more conversation about this incredible joy that God has done when He turned our worlds upside down. You know, I just, uh, I got a couple books that the Triennial was giving Everybody, and, and the one, Michael Frost, The Road to Missional, Journey to the Center of the Church. The other one, Western Christians in Global Mission, What's the Role of the North American Church by Paul Borthwick. In this book, Paul Borthwick's, I'm leaving these in the church library. The book by Paul Borthwick uh, quotes some recent static, uh, st- statistics um, about, about um, this whole matter. 
One of the points he made is this. The, the, the research says that an estimated 2 billion, that's almost a third of the world's population, an estimated 2 billion people in this world have never clearly heard the gospel. In other words, in propositional terms, they're, they're talking. They haven't even heard the gospel. Now, incarnational terms, that's another matter. That's knowing a gospel Christian. That's knowing someone who lives the gospel. But two billion people haven't even heard the presentation, the idea. I remember two years ago, we were in La Paz with the uh, Bolivia team. We were with, I was with uh, one of the Korean fellas. And we were talking and walking around La Paz in the market. And we went up to this little Quechua girl, maybe 15 or 16. She was running a little tienda, a little store. She obviously just come from the campo. So many of them, they live in El Alto. They come down every day and they work in the stores in La Paz. And I remember just chatting with her in Spanish and talking. And I asked her if she ever heard the story about Jesus Christ. She'd never heard the story about Jesus Christ. Never heard of it. Never heard his name. Two billion people in this world don't know anything about, about this gospel we talk about. Now, that's one static. static why do I say that? <laughs> Statistic. It's my Spanish. <clears throat> Here's another one. Same research reveals this. As many as 86%. Huge number there. As many as 86% of all Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists in this world do not personally know a Christian. Now you think to yourself, oh, that, that's obvious. I mean, if you're Iran, Iraq, Indonesia, you know, lots of places dark, not, not accepting people, you know. But guess what? A lot of those people live in Canada. So it might not be near the 86%, but a percentage of that 86% of Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists who do not know of a believing person in Jesus Christ, they live in Canada too. And the question I ask is, how many of you have relationship with the guys with the turbans or with the women with the shawls or the, you know, the, the sari and so on? How many of you have relationship with those people? And then in relationship, how many of you have conversation about your faith? I know that all of you are saying yes in your heads. I, I say yes in my heads. But in my lifestyle, I don't live always this way to make time for that. Dave Wynn and I were just talking about this this past week. You need to know a neighbor, me, talking about this wonderful bro, uh, fella, Omar, that painted some of our church, wants to give it as a free gift. I said, well, no, why don't you submit your receipt? If you want to give something to the church, you give it afterwards. He says, okay. Are we in relationship? Are we in, do we have an opportunity to incarnate the gospel? Wow. I just looked at the clock. <laughs> Sorry, Alf. There's a, I'm going to quickly drive to the end here. Um, there's a gospel presentation we won't show. Um, it's called The Big Story. It's by InterVarsity. You might want to go look at it. If you're over 40, you're going to find some of the language hard to understand. I did. I know it's hard to believe I'm over 40. But um, <clears throat> um, if you're 20 or 30, you might, you might say, I can identify with that. I'm not going to go into it. It goes through propositional truth. It uses uh, words instead of sin or rebellion. It uses words like chasing our own needs, damaging relationships, and so on. 
But the, the bottom line is that it, it is an attempt at sharing the gospel in different ways. And as I reflect on the presentation, I think about ways that I would want to change it. But uh, the bottom line is, what's this partnership in the gospel all about? Uh, we have been talking a lot about partnerships in our church with Bolivia, with Garden Hill, with Living Bible Explorers, with Nudimic, and so on. And these are all important areas of ministry. Do you know that the old English word for gospel is God's spell? It's made up of two words, good and spell. And spell was the idea of telling a story. If someone tells a good story, they cast a spell on the listener. You ever watch children listening to a story? You know, except for the ones that interrupt when raise their hands all the time. But, you know, it's incredible. That's, that's what the old English word used to stand for, is this God spell. It's, it's this casting a spell, telling a story. That's incarnating. Incarnating what you're talking about, you see. And it just casts a spell. That's what it does when we are really gospel people. And Paul's saying that he's overflowing with joy because the story of the Philippians, since the time he had been there ten years earlier, keeps on casting that spell, keeps on gripping their lives, and the joy that he sees just overflows because he sees that it's a genuine, genuine joy. And so... Michael Frost, in this book that I just shared, says that, and with this I'll close, that um, if the church is doing its job in mission, locally and globally, on an everyday basis, we function much like a movie trailer does. And uh, we see a movie trailer, and, and what do you watch? You see a summary, a, a sampling of the movie, right? And, and you've ever been to a movie theater where you, you see the trailers of coming attractions, and you'll notice people lean over... They're saying, I sometimes say to Pat, well, there's one we can avoid. But, but sometimes, if it's a good movie and a good trailer, what do you hear? We've got to go see that one. You see, that's what the church on mission is supposed to be like. The church on mission is supposed to whet the appetite of us and, and, and people that are on the outside looking in at the grace of God incarnate in a life that's being transformed. They say, I want to know more about the inside of that world they live in. That's the gospel, isn't it? Well, I'm going to invite Pastor Alf to come uh, directly up to the Lord's table. He's going to be leading us in the, the Lord's Supper. And the worship team is going to be directing us in worship. Those that are helping with communion, could you come as well? And let me just end with this comment as these people come forward. And um, forgive us for, forgive me for maybe going longer than I should have. Oh, good. <laughs> Thanks, Aliona. God did not send a memo. God sent his son. And uh, he incarnated the gospel. And the, and the table that is set before us is a reminder of the emblems. And, and, I, and I know that we all, we all have struggles believing. And so we can come to this table and in some sector of our lives where we struggle really, really trusting this sovereign God, Jesus Christ. We can come to this table regardless. You can confess that sin of unbelief. You can confess your doubts. You can confess your fears. You can bring all that to Jesus right now. Because the risen Christ is, is here with us and He invites us to come and to receive what He has to give. A reminder of the incredible, incredible gospel which He came to incarnate and plant in our lives as well. And so...
Pastor Alf, would you lead us as we continue?